Hello and welcome to the Urban Health Podcast, Keeping Busy People Healthy. I'm Stephanie Webster. I'm a nutritional therapist based in Harley Street, London, specializing in extreme fat loss for busy executives and entrepreneurs. Being an entrepreneur myself, I like to find slick solutions to health problems. To help me on that mission, today we have the honor of having Dr. Victor Kulik on the show. Dr. Kulik is a psychiatrist at the London Doctors Clinic. He sees patients with a wide variety of conditions, in particular adult ADHD, depression, bipolar, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, psychotic conditions, as well as treating patients who abuse substances. He has also worked with the National Problem Gambling Clinic and completed advanced training in ADHD. His interests include the use of technology in healthcare, quality improvement, and he has published on improving patient experience. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thanks for having me. So what got you interested in psychiatry and addictions in particular? Well, I need to say um, medicine is, is a very interesting branch of activity, human activity, but all of the branches of, of medicine seems to become quite boring to me, whether psychiatry and addictions that presented uh, with a lot more challenge and, and a lot more diversity than, than any of the other branches of medicine. Uh, the human experience is just so interesting and so diverse that you can't compare it to someone having a cough, cold, or, or even chest pain. Um, this thing seemed to be sort of becoming boring really quickly, I need to say, as well as, um, yeah, the human experience. Um, that, that never gets boring, that, that's always different and, and unique. Um, and yeah, that, that's why I'm doing it. And what are the top five addictions that you come across? And do patients tend to have more than one or do they cluster? How does that work? Difficult to say um, because some addictions obviously are more prominent, but people don't present with them. Um, but, but in terms of the, 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 the problems that patients come to see me about, that would be mainly um, alcohol, illicit drugs, you can, you can call it, in, in all of them, I suppose, group them as one. Um, then, then behavioral addictions like gambling addiction um, is quite problematic as well. So some people with, with sexual uh, sort of addictions as well. Um, and, and, and you're right in saying that, that people often have more than one or jump from one to the other. Um, it's, it, it's something that, that people sort of, um, yeah, if, if, if they try, you know, they're able to give, one, give up one of the addictions, then that they might then replace it with perhaps a healthier one, but often um, yeah, have more than one. And, and when it comes to uh, some of the people I worked with previously, they have a complex set of addictions, including um, drugs and alcohol and um, prescription medications and, and gambling, for example, as well, thrown into that. So, yeah, yeah they do often come in clusters. Is there a root cause for all of these different addictions or, or are they all separate? Well, there is often an, an underlying problem. Um, we used to think in medicine that, that addictions was due to the, the substance or, you know, some, a, a behavior perhaps that um, that was causing it. But really the, the, the understanding is that it, it most of the time is um, just trying to trying to deal with some, some underlying problems and trying to manage their own problems or you know, psychological, be medical. Um, but there, there often is an, an underlying problem. There isn't one because these are very individual, but one of the roles of, of, of us as addiction 
uh, specialist is to identify that and, and try and address that in addition to the substance itself or the behavior itself. So what is the difference between an addiction and then an unhealthy relationship with a substance? Because some people say, I'm not an alcoholic, I just have a drinking problem. Yeah, I mean, there's different definitions of addiction depending on, on which criteria we look at. But I suppose the, the way I like to think about it is when it becomes habitual, where um, when it becomes a problem, I suppose that's the, the biggest thing. Because, you know, certain behaviors and, and, and substances can play a role in, in someone's life um, and not create too much problems. But um, when they start uh, affecting the, uh, the other parts of your life, um, then, then, then that's what I would call it addiction. And then, yeah, then obviously there are strict criteria uh, for that, depending on the substance or behavior that, that you need to fulfill to, to have the diagnosis of addiction. But, but in general, I, I would see the border there being as, as something that causing problems um, and, and obviously then people come and look for, for someone's help, be it a psychologist, a therapist or a doctor. Uh, you get substance addiction like cocaine, food, alcohol, and then there are behaviours like gambling, sex, porn, overeating and even exercise. Tell us about the differences between substances and behaviours. So the, the underlying thing is is similar process in the brain. Um, what our brains do is they tend to promote behaviours that historically were supposed to help us with our survival. Um, so there's part of the brain um, which uh, releasing uh, a substance called dopamine and, and that's a sort of pleasure chemical, if you wish. Um, and that the part of the brain is, is uh, responsible for both behavioral addictions um, and addiction to substances. Uh, because any, any sort of behavior that causes pleasure, uh, causes the release of dopamine, uh, is potentially can, can, can lead to addiction. Now, the, the difference between the substances is that some of them, not, not all of them, but some of them can also cause a, a chemical issue which is dependent on the substance. Mm -hmm. So as, as you continue and increase uh, how much of the substance you, you take, let's say you continue to drink more and more alcohol, your body adjusts to it and there's a new balance in your body that develops. So then if you were to stop it, then the, the, your body is out of balance. Um, and, and with substances, um, often there is an element uh, of that chemical dependence when, when your body adjusts to this new state of being under the influence, not just psychologically, but also in terms of your physical uh, health symptoms. But that would be the main difference. But the underlying cause is that pleasurable uh, release of that pleasurable chemical called dopamine in, 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 in one part of the brain that would underpin both addictions to the behaviors uh, as well as the substance. And the, does that apply to alcohol as well? Because a lot of my clients work in the city or they're entrepreneurs and they're under a lot of pressure. And when they get home at night and often to relax or unwind, they drink copious amounts of alcohol. And I, I, I was just wondering of what the cause of that would be. That's one of the biggest obstacles we face in our clinic when we help uh, people transform their lives and their health. Alcohol seems to be one of the hardest things for, for them to reduce. Uh, and although they're not technically clinically diagnosed as alcoholics, they do have this large dependency on alcohol. So is it the dopamine as well? That would be involved, but, but specifically for alcohol, it um, does tend to relax us. It uh, affects our bodies in, in that way, that it does uh, tend to help. And, and 
you know, some of the research shows that small quantities of alcohol might be helpful for our overall health. But obviously, when we're talking about very small, perhaps two glasses of wine a, a week, that, you know, especially in a social context, all of that experience might be positive for our health. Uh, well, when people try and tackle their anxiety and stress with increasing amounts of alcohol, then it obviously stops becoming uh, productive and, and helpful. Um, the problem with alcohol is that even though, you know, short term so tends to help with the anxiety with sleep, even some people use it to, to induce sleep, um, it is a depressant. Um, and the, the more you consume, the, the worse your, your mental health becomes um, just because the quality of your sleep is reduced and and, and, and also it, it has a depressant effect on your brain and, and on your psyche. Um, so, it, it, you know, longer term, it, it, it has having a negative effect. And people try and drink more and more to, to try and go into that sort of happy state when they, they feel the release of dopamine um, or, or, or that state of relaxation. But because it develops tolerance, because your body is adjusting to the alcohol, you need to drink more and more, and, and that's um, sort of uh, one of the ways uh, in, in which people start developing problems with alcohol, um, both the, the, the pleasure from the dopamine as well as the, the relaxing effect um, of, of, of the particular drug. And it's the same with sugar and carbohydrates and having that sugar high, that sugar rush, as it's called. Um, how have you helped patients overcome their uh, dependency on sugar if, or even a sugar addiction? I, I wouldn't specifically treat people for, for sugar uh, addiction or dependence, um, but it is the same thing that under the, is underlying. Um, any food really causes release of dopamine. Um, as I said, it, it's historically looking at, at, at evolutionary terms, it, it was promoting our survival. That's why that behavior is, is uh, relieving dopamine, because if, if you're eating them, it's a positive thing, and, and yeah, you'll survive. Obviously now, we don't really need to eat all the time, because there's plenty of food available, um, and then, then when it becomes a problem. Um, and, and sugar, yeah, sugar in particular, uh, has, has a tendency to release dopamine. And um, there's also the variation in, in blood sugar levels that can um, make, make that sort of relationship even stronger. Yes, and also so, caffeine. I'm, I'm, I'm not, yeah, yeah, caffeine, similarly, it, 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 it works in the same way. Um, and obviously, uh, people like feeling more, uh, more alive and, and, and more active because it also is a stimulant. Um, so, you know, even though it's not technically um, a drug, uh, it's not illegal, um, it is a substance that, that uh, stimulates us in the same way as, as, as amphetamine, in the same way as cocaine. And they all have that sort of stimulating effect. So that, in, in combination with the dopamine, um, is, is what's causing the addiction. Yeah. But yeah, I, I wouldn't treat people for, for sugar or, or caffeine addiction on its own. So some people just say to us, "Do you know I've just got an addictive personality?" Is that is that uh, is that something that you've come across? So, uh, addictive personality is a bit of a simplification. So um, what the research has shown is that there are certain personality traits—not the whole personality, but certain elements of, of personality—that are making you more likely to uh, develop problems with addictions. Um, and they are quite obvious things if you think about it. So, so people that have tendency for seeking for novelty, people that find it more difficult to, to bond with others, for example, 
these are some of the traits that, that, that people can have in their personality that would make them more likely to, to develop dependence. But obviously there's much more uh, when it comes to someone developing an addiction than just, just the personality traits. Even if someone had multiple traits, uh, addictive traits in, in their personality, it doesn't mean they're going to develop addiction. And similarly, someone can have just one or, or maybe not even one that's recognized and still develop the, the addiction. This is really just element of personality that makes you more likely to develop dependence and addiction rather than, you know, having an, an addictive personality per se. That's probably the best way to explain it. Yes. Um, we started our clinic specializing for men in finance and also entrepreneurs. We see ladies also, and we find that ladies, uh, we don't like to make generalizations based on gender. However, uh, the, the ladies do tend to like um, sharing the, the, the feelings and their problems more so we can actually help them better. And men tend to be a bit more closed off and they find it difficult to ask for help. That's just our experience. That's not a general comment. Some of them feel shame or they feel judgment. And we take pride in offering a non-judgmental, safe and discreet place for them to share what's going on for them and give them the best healthcare to suit. Um, have you found that there is that similarity as well, where it's a bit harder for a man to seek help? Yes, yes, it's, it's, it's well recognised, and, and there's a lot of experience to try and explain it. I mean, again, going back to when we were in the case, men would go out and hunt, and, and women would stay together, uh, support each other, and, and share their experiences. If, if you think about it in, in, the, in terms of evolutionary terms, we're not that far off from, from that time. And, and also culturally, in, in a lot of cultures, it's, it's, you know, men are seen as supposed to be the one that's strong and, um, and, and have that sort of role in, in, in the family unit or in the society, uh, in, in a bigger picture. Um, and, and we've not managed to get away from that, even, even though obviously we live in very different times than, than living in caves. Uh, I think some of that still remains. Um, some of it could be explained by the hormones, uh, I suppose, as well. Makeup and our brain makeup. Um, but I think a lot of that is to do with how the society and, and culture functions. There are still differences in, in how men and women are raised and um, how, how seeking help is, is seen by, by the other members of the society. I think society's conditioning yeah. has a lot to answer for, and um, it makes me very upset that this is how people feel. Um, but moving on to processed food, um, I think you've already answered it earlier with, with dopamine being the, the main the main allure. But uh, I know a lot of my clients will be asking me this because they do get cravings for processed food. Processed food is full of chemicals that stimulates the brain and it can appear to be addictive. Can you talk to us about processed food and why it's so hard to stop eating junk food, cakes, burgers, chips, ketchup, chocolate, from a chemical standpoint? And and also, I was studying uh, about the manufacturing industry, the food manufacturing, where they get the right amount of sugar, fat, and salt to create this bliss point, which activates the the, the brain in a in in a really addictive way. Um, yeah. So, what what do we have to say on processed food? Um, I mean, you're definitely right, definitely with that. Um, that the foods are designed to, to be as, as, as pleasurable as, as, as possible. Um, but also, in very, you know, very simple terms, processed food has got a lot of sugar available very quickly in comparison to the whole foods. Um, so that, that releases, uh, the, you know, it increases your blood sugar release quickly and, and, and releases more dopamine than uh, a 
slowly absorbing uh, carbohydrates, for example. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of science that goes into designing things like that, um, and as you said, the, the sort of designing them in a way that, that make them most pleasurable for most humans. Um, um, I think I remember reading about the researchers that went into creating the person ketchup. That um, there was a huge number of people that were sampled, and, and they found, you know, the one that uh, that was working more for tastier for most of the people just by sampling the sort of possible sample. Um, even though there are individual differences, but uh, you know, obviously the manufacturers go for the one that would have be the biggest hit for, for the majority of people. So yeah, there's a number of things. Um, so some of the advocates can also um, in, increase that uh, effect as well. But the, at the core is, is the quickly released blood sugar that causes spikes in your blood sugar levels in your body. Yeah, and uh, although earlier on we said that caffeine isn't a drug because it's not illegal, I think if it's addictive, just like food, it it has a drug-like effect on the body. I mean, why do we need all these highs? We must be experiencing some serious lows if we're constantly craving these things that give us a rush. Or, um, it's I guess it's an extreme way of balancing our emotions. And um, I often find with my clients, it's just easier to eliminate these processed foods rather than to wean yourself off. Because if you still have a little bit every day, you're still you're still on the grid, as I call it. You're still connected mm. to that to, to that world. Whereas if you just disconnect completely, you, it gives your body a chance to reset and find its own truth, find its own intuition, and then you'll start craving real food, real un- beautiful vegetables, just unprocessed. Uh, unprocessed food. Just give your body what it needs, and nothing that it doesn't need, and just keep it clean. And it's um, it's a twelve week process. That's why that's why we're successful on that. But um, a, lo- a lot of uh, our clients might be dating somebody or have be in relationship with somebody who has an addiction. So if your partner is addicted to a substance or a behavior like porn, for example, what words can we offer partners or friends or family of somebody dealing with an addiction, particularly if they're in denial still? It, it can be sometimes tricky. Obviously, any treatment or approach is, is more successful when the person recognizes the problem. Um, the more you talk about it in a non-judgmental and supportive way, uh, and the more that you have sort of trying to help them understand uh, that the particular issue is, is causing a problem, the, the quicker they might get into sort of being able to understand that, um, that there is an issue there. Um, but obviously people can become defensive if, if things like that are approached directly. Uh, it definitely works best if person has its own, their own understanding of, of there being an issue. Um, so, uh, yeah, just, just trying to approach it in a supportive way, trying to, you know, often the people recognize there's a problem, but also see positives about it. So, in, in therapy, we, we can do things like looking at the positive versus the negatives, and at some point, uh, the patient will see that there is definitely more negatives than positives, and, and wants to start the treatment. But yeah, people often are in that pre-contemplative phase, as we call it, when they are not yet ready to, to access the treatment, and trying to rush someone into treatment or therapy before they're ready doesn't necessarily result in, in positive outcomes. So it's better to approach them and get them into the, the place where they're actually recognizing there is an issue and, and want to address it. 
And I know that in your work, you feel a lot of empathy for somebody who's really struggling and they've come to you after trying a number of different approaches. And then finally, they knock on your door and they 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 get the help that they need and they their lives are completely transformed and they're finally addiction free. And you must have a case study where it particularly stuck in your mind for your intervention with the, with a patient and you've transformed them. Is there a case study you'd like to share? Share maybe an anonymized case study. No, of course. Yeah, but, um, maybe a, a combination of patients so that no one could recognize a particular study. I obviously don't want anyone to think that uh, things are confidential. So I can tell you about a typical um, case or, or something I've seen sort of recently a number of times. So perhaps someone that has developed problems with using cocaine. Um, and they've been treated for a number of different disorders in the past. They've been treated for uh, bipolar disorder was suspected at some points. Obviously, for periods of time, they were treated for depression. And for periods of time, they were treated for anxiety. Um, but I've actually found that an underlying cause was, was in that case, ADHD. Um, and no one obviously recognized that before. Um, and it was amazing to see how, how the, the treatment has changed, not just the, the relationship with the substances, which was really just an attempt to self-medicate ADHD, but also um, in terms of the other mental health difficulties that accompanied it, because um, yeah, that, that was this one underlying cause for all of the other problems, really. Um, and, and people often describe the treatment as, as, as life-changing and, and transforming. That's amazing. That must feel very rewarding for you. And how, how do we take measures to look after our mental and emotional health every day? Is there a checklist we should go through? Are there different practices that you support? I'm probably say there's a checklist for, for everyone, but obviously there's, there's important things uh, that everyone uh, can think about. So uh, making sure your quality of sleep and, and the amount of sleep is sufficient. Uh, making sure you, you eat um, and, and, and drink the right things. Um, our relationship with, with substances, um, because, you know, as you described, even the thoughts uh, affect the brain in, in so many ways. So looking at that relationship with, with our food, with, our, with what we drink. Um, and the quality of our relationship with others, um, that in, in, in a lot of research that's found to be... Um, as or, or even more important than um, than the relationship with uh, you know with, with everything else that had more impact on the suicide rates, for example, and uh, on, on someone's um, sort of overall well-being and they, our relationship with, with others. Um, what I found also is that uh, what I'm trying to recommend to people after with depression, for example, and anxiety, is physical activity, regular physical activity. Um, it has positive effects not just on the physical health, uh, but also very much on a positive effect on, on the mental. That, that's that's very useful. Thank you. And I'm, I'm in the process of designing an app at the moment for my clients to log in and check their food diaries. Um, I'm also interested in the use of technology in healthcare, raising standards and creating a seamless patient experience. What what have you discovered in this space? I know this is something that you're interested in. Yes, very much so. so um, 
I'm part of a first company that developed online psychiatric services in the UK. Uh, our name is very simply Psychiatry UK, um, and we've developed an online system to, to enable us to see patients confidentially and, 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 and safely, and obviously developed a range of services around that. Um, and and we're, we're growing as a company, we're seeing more and more people, and uh, we're seeing a very positive feedback from them. Um, it's obviously just the start, and, and technology will transform the way uh, we as doctors interact with patients uh, much, much more. But I think that that's a good start, um, and it's proven really popular with the patients. Um, and, and also quite good for, for the doctors to be able to see people when they travel, when they um, on the conference, for example, and, and being able to help them, um, you know, when, when they wouldn't be able to meet face to face, for example. Oh, that's amazing. So it's called Psychiatry UK. That's right, yeah. That's, that's. Yeah, no, that that's fantastic. Um, we we also offer personal trainers to go to people's homes, hotels, and therapists who do over Zoom. And so, Psychiatry UK, I'd never heard that you could get a psychiatry service uh, across technology. That's actually quite revolutionary because normally um, you, you'd have to meet them face to face. That's fantastic that you've done that. I'll look into that more. And uh, where where can we? book you if we wanted to come for a consultation where are you based what are your contact details what do you offer um so obviously psychiatry uk is, is one of the, the places that i could be found uh, along with over 30 other consultant psychiatrists um i also see people at the london doctors clinic um, at fleet street um it's called uh at one of at 107 fleet street uh, i see them yeah, i can see people during the week um, and over the weekend, if someone lives in um, the sort of East London, uh, I see people in South Woodford at Lily House. Um, yeah. uh, you know, and obviously, I've got plenty of availability online. Um, that's probably the best places to, to look for. Um, you can check my website, victorcolic.com, um, and all the contact details are there if, if anyone wants to get in touch. That was great. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. Pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Victor Killick, for investing your time in helping the Urban Health Podcast keeping busy people healthy.